God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Today, looking at Isaiah chapter 40 and reading verses 1 through 11, as we take a brief hiatus from our New Testament studies, we finished First uh, Thessalonians last week, and uh, Lord willing, in the new year, we will come back and study Second Thessalonians, but today, as we take uh, a brief break uh, for the Advent season, we are looking at one of the great Advent texts in Isaiah in chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. You can find that on page 599 of our ESVs, if you've not already. And uh, before we read this text together, please join me again in a word of prayer as we seek God's blessing in our study. O gracious and righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for this word which speaks a word of comfort to your people. We pray that as we read it, we would see not only what the prophet had to tell Israel, but what the prophet has to teach us. We pray that we would see the one who is our shepherd, who leads us out of sin and unto himself. We pray that you would meet us with the word of your gospel. We pray that you would do this for your namesake and cause us to rejoice in you, we ask in Jesus. Amen. Hear God's word as we find it in Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. As far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we read it and study it together today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
I wonder, when was the last time that you read those words? When was the last time that you sang them? Or you prayed them? Or you read them together with some loved one that you were trying to share a word of comfort with? When was the last time you were comforted by the scripture's conviction that the Lord himself is the shepherd of your soul? There was a time not too long ago when Psalm 23 was part of the collective spiritual consciousness of the entire Christianized world. There was a time when every believer could have recited that whole psalm without hesitation at the drop of a hat. There was a time when most unbelievers could have made it through most of it. It's the reason why many of us still have it memorized in the King James, even if we don't keep the King James on our nightstand anymore. It's the reason why sometimes even nominally Christian family members gather around a dying matriarch or a dying patriarch and they'll open the Bible to those words. There's a sense sometimes that they ought to be reading something, that they should go somewhere to find comfort and consolation, and they're not sure where, but Psalm 23 seems like a good place to go. It's part and parcel of our Christian faith. It's part of the very DNA of what it means to be a Christian believer. To know the comfort that comes from being shepherded by God, being watched and being cared for and being protected by the Creator who draws near to His children. Of course, there is an obstacle to seeing God as our good shepherd. The obstacle is that first we have to see ourselves as sheep. We know the implications of that. Even if you live in the suburbs, and the closest you ever get to livestock is a petting zoo, you know what it means to be God's sheep. You know that if God is your shepherd and you are his sheep, then it means that you actually need him. You know that it means that you're not safe in life or in eternity without him. You know that if God is your shepherd, then your greatest need in all of the universe is for him to be with you. And that is precisely the comfort that the scriptures proclaim when they proclaim that God is our shepherd, as they do here in Isaiah. It's always hard for us to jump into the middle of a book and to try to get our bearings. It's even harder when that book is as expansive as Isaiah's prophecy is. So you need to know that as we open Isaiah to chapter 40, we are jumping in at a major transition in the message that God has been giving through his prophet up to this point. For 39 chapters, more or less, God has been declaring judgment against the sinful unbelief of his people. It hasn't all been judgment, not completely judgment. There are some bright spots along the way and these signs and reminders that God is not done with his people, but on the whole, it's been pretty negative. For 39 chapters, the theme has been that though God can be trusted to provide for his people, his people have chosen not to trust him. God is sufficient, we find. God is powerful. He is willing. He is able to supply all the spiritual and physical safety his people need as they live in the land that he has promised to them. But faced with the realities of daily life, Israel has chosen to put their hopes for the future somewhere other than God their shepherd. They have just about put their their hopes anywhere other than where it should be with God their shepherd. 
They've trusted in the nations around them to provide their political stability. They have trusted in their false idols to provide healings and harvests. They've trusted in the pursuit of pleasure to provide a good life for themselves. They have trusted outwardly oriented religious behavior rather than something that is real holiness. Because outwardly oriented religious behavior doesn't really cost them real repentance. And they have put their faith just about everywhere other than where it should be placed. And thus far, in 39 chapters, it has done them no good. And so the last words of chapter 39 declare the punishment that God has been moving toward since the very first chapter. There is going to be an exile. Look back at chapter 39, verses 5 through 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's where it's all been trending. And if you had been reading the message up to this point, you would say that's no surprise. Anyone could have seen it coming. It is what the rebellion of God's people deserves. Here's a God who desires to be depended upon. Here's the Lord who has been shepherding his people to himself, and yet like sheep they have all gone astray. They have turned every one to his own way. Then who could blame the Lord for bringing judgment on a people like that? For that matter, who could blame the Lord for bringing judgment on a people like you? People who have heard God's goodness, yet so often and so persistently insist on trusting on yourselves. A people who know God's holiness, yet so often and so persistently go after the pursuit of sin instead. A people with the world at their fingertips so that you forget to look above this realm of gadgets and life goals and remember the fact that God promises to you heavenly life in abundance with him. Chapter 39 is not a surprise. Chapter 39 in Isaiah is one more vindication, one more variation on the unavoidable biblical theme that our sin against the Lord always results in separation. Adam and Eve thumbed their nose at God's standards in the garden and they were removed from his presence as a consequence. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us about a day that's coming all the way at the end when the flocks will be separated, distinguished from one another, the goats on the one side and the lambs on the other. And there will be a final separation for the guilt of our sin. And everywhere in between that first separation in the garden, the last one on the last day, the Bible gives us glimpses and pictures to remind us that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. His ear is not too dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So no, actually, chapter 39 shouldn't come as a surprise. But chapter 40? 
Well, there's a revelation. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. And you hear the covenantal language there. They're my people, says the Lord. I'm their God, just as I promised I would be. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Historically speaking, the judgment was yet to come. The exile was not yet. Isaiah was still in Jerusalem, still uh, proclaiming his word to people who were generations away from the fall of the holy city. Isaiah is speaking the comfort of God to people who are under a curse that has not yet fallen upon them. And it is into that condemnation that the prophet speaks this word that cuts to the very heart of the problem they've been dealing with. Tell my people, says the Lord, tell her that her iniquity is pardoned. Tell her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The word double comes from a verb that means to fold over, to fold in half, to to take a piece of cloth and fold it over so completely and so perfectly that the cloth on the bottom cannot be seen because it is absolutely covered by the cloth that is on the top. And the Lord is saying, speak to Israel and declare to her that I am dealing with her sin at its roots. I'm blotting out her transgression so that they can no longer be seen. It's a word of comfort that also brings a diagnosis of the problem. Think of all the symptoms of life that the Israelites tried to mitigate with their trust in their false saviors. Their spiritual lives had become like those medicine cabinets that you sometimes see that are overflowing, right, with one prescription after another and supplements and vitamins and capsules trying to trace down one ailment, one ache, one deficiency after another. The people were bursting at the seams with all their remedies for their own self-diagnosed sicknesses. They thought they knew what they needed better than anybody else. They needed better international alliances, they thought. They needed better opportunities for their children. They needed greater wealth, greater prosperity. They needed more educational programs. They needed bigger houses. They needed more religious experiences. They needed greater personal autonomy. And left to themselves, they could have come up with an endless supply of solutions to address all their self-perceived problems. And they could have done it all without ever scratching below the surface of what their real need actually was. So when the Lord speaks his word of comfort, he does so in a way that reveals what their need actually is. This is the comfort he brings to his people. And he's the one who deals with their sin. It's a declaration that what we need most is not some new religious program. What we need is to have our sins forgiven. What we need is a shepherd who can save us. And the more comfort God speaks in this passage, the more we are convinced that that is true. So in verse 3, we hear the voice of one crying out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There's an interpretation of these verses. You may have heard it. 
these verses about the wilderness, the interpretation goes that what God is declaring is that he is going to bring his people back from exile. The idea is that when the Lord speaks of mountains made low, when he talks about rough places smoothed out, what he talks about is the broad and easy path that he's going to create to bring his elect people back from their captivity. This interpretation uh, essentially sees these verses as primarily aimed at those generations directly after Isaiah, and it's a message of hope that God is not finished with them. There's a lot to commend that interpretation. That was John Calvin's reading of verses 3 through 5. But the problem with that interpretation is that it's not literally what these verses are telling us. Almost the opposite, actually. Did you notice that in verses 3 through 5, it is not the Lord who makes a way for his people, but the people who have to prepare for their God. It is not they who are coming to him, but he who is coming to them. And so the New Testament reveals that this is a preparation of repentance. John the Baptist applies this wilderness terminology to the need for sinners to be cultivated and cleansed in order to be able to stand before the Lord when he shows up in his glory. That's the direction that all of this wilderness language has been moving in the whole time. It's been headed toward verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Alec Matir says that when we read this phrase, the glory of the Lord, what we should hear is the Lord in all of his glory. Not that it means that he's just going to show up in some wonderful signs of smoke and fire and miracle like he used to, but that the Lord is going to show up in the fullness of his personal presence. He himself will be there among the people. And it's another indication that actually we need the forgiveness that God alone can work for his people. Do you remember what happened the last time the glory of the Lord was revealed in the prophecy of Isaiah? It happened in chapter 6. It happened in chapter 6 when the prophet himself saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And we're told that above him stood the seraphim, covering their faces, calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation shook, and the house was filled with smoke. And do you remember how Isaiah responded? That he rejoiced to be in the presence of the all-accepting God of all the earth. That he pen a praise chorus to share with all of his friends as they could sing together kumbaya style around a fire. No, Isaiah responded instinctively the very same way that humanity always responds when we find ourselves in the undeniable presence of the Holy Lord of creation. He acknowledged his guilt. He expected his doom. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it means that if there is to be any comfort at all for God's people, on the day when all flesh will encounter the glory of the Lord, what we need is the pardon that these verses are talking about. 
We need, above all, a holiness that overcomes the separation that our sin has created. We need a comfort that cannot be created by humanity. As I studied this passage this week, I found myself puzzling over what in the world verses 6 to 8 are doing here. Maybe you puzzle over the same thing. From the context, it seems like this whole passage is supposed to be telling us something reassuring, something encouraging, and right there, smack in the middle, right, is this cry to call out that the flesh is grass and it's beauty like the flower of the field. Can you imagine that as this sentimental message on the inside of a greeting card? Right, maybe you'll see it next, next season at CVS. It'll be there in that little uh, pocket under a heading that says, thinking of you. And on the cover will be this pastel watercolor of a field full of asters and daisies. And when you open it up, the message on the inside, a caption in delicate lettering, it'll say, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. They're thinking of you. A comforting message. A bit of encouragement for you today as I was thinking about you. Is that what you think of when you think of comfort? Probably not. But it is what we need to hear. It's what we need to hear if we ever are going to learn to look for real comfort in the right places. We've already seen, we've talked about the fact that Israel's persistent problem was that she was always looking for human solutions to theological problems. It was almost comical in the way that it turned out if it wasn't so disastrous for the nation and it didn't bring so much oppression and bloodshed and suffering. Right, The northern kingdom threatened the safety of the south, and Jerusalem, instead of making an alliance with the Lord and trusting in his strength, they made an alliance with Assyria. Surprise, surprise, pretty soon Assyria turned their sights on Jerusalem. And so what did they do? Well, they went over to Egypt and they hired some chariots and some horsemen. Over and over again, the pattern repeated. Their attempts look far too much like our own to be comfortable for us to read. There were probably people among Israel in Isaiah's day who believed that every next resource, every new social program on the horizon was going to bring the salvation that they were looking for. There were probably other people on the other side that believed that all of their problems would go away if they could just make Israel great again. And on it would go, waffling between the two sides. Here's the solution we've got this time. No, that's not going to work. I've come up with another one. Let's try this. Let's pivot over here. Let's do something else for a change. Always staying on the surface. And they went on pursuing human solutions until the Lord spoke these words to wake them up. All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. That word translated beauty is one of those Hebrew words that you already know. The word is hesed. It's the word used in the Old Testament to talk about God's covenantal steadfast love, his love that condescends, his merciful love, his love that clings to the object of his love and does not let go until he has worked a blessing. So the footnote you notice in the ESV tells us that in this context it could be translated as constancy. It's a good option. All the constancy of flesh 
just like the flower of the field. It's pointing out that this is the best you can hope for from human solutions and saviors. It is a twin idea to what we find in Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. No salvation in the power of man. No comfort that can survive a cardiac arrest. And it might not seem very comforting unless it leads you to look beyond the human saviors and to seek instead what God himself is capable of. So the grass withers, we're told, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What word is that? It's the word of pardon. It's the word of promise. It's the word that announces that the everlasting God will come himself to deal with the sins that separate his people from him. And from where we stand on this side of the first advent of Christ, it is the word that announces that he has come already. In verse 9, there's a subtle yet pretty important shift in the passage. Up until that verse, Jerusalem has been the recipient of God's word of comfort. The prophet has been sent to her. There's this nameless voice of one speaking from the wilderness. There is an angelic announcement uh, declaring the frailty of humanity. And all of it, up to this point, has been tenderly spoken, as verse 2 indicated, to Jerusalem. Not in verse 9. In verse 9, the hearer becomes the herald. In verse 9, the city of God is instructed to shout aloud the good news of God's presence. Verse 9, get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That might not seem like a very important shift to you, but it's one of the clearest indications that this word of comfort is bigger. It is drastically, cosmically larger than just the rescue of the exiles out of Babylon. How do we know? Well, we know because all the way back near the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there, The Lord made a promise about what it was going to look like when real salvation came to God's people. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, the Lord said this. He said, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There is a day coming, says the Lord. The Lord calls it in in chapter 2, the latter days. The New Testament calls it the fullness of time. Jesus said it was the time that the 
the fullness had come, had been fulfilled when the kingdom is at hand. It's a day when the separation of God's people will come to a close. When the Lord himself will dwell among men to deal with their iniquity. It is a message almost too good to be believed. And so Jerusalem herself must be encouraged in Isaiah 40 verse 9 not to fear. Not to be afraid that somehow God's word could fail. It can't fail. It lasts forever, we're told. And the good news she must proclaim to God's people is, excuse me, the message that he's here. Behold, your God, she says. In the midst of a world full of any endless number of human saviors and human solutions, the everlasting one is here. The eternal God whose days have no end. The Savior whose chesed has no expiration date. And it's true that when he came into the world, he was liable to be overlooked. And so just as he always does, when the Lord sends his salvation into the world, he announces his salvation in a way that diagnoses how much we need him. So the angel said, you will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. E.J. Young, excuse me, E.J. Young wrote that with the coming of Jesus into the world, the impossible happened. When Christ was incarnate, humanity did what humanity cannot do. What can humanity not do? The Bible tells us that no man can see the face of God. And live. And yet Jesus told his disciples that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father too. And before it happened, the Lord through Isaiah said that this was the message that his children would share with the nations the message that God has come near, that the everlasting shepherd would come to lead his people out of their sin. It's true that Isaiah chapter 40 doesn't give us the details on how that happens. To get the rest of that, you have to keep reading the story for the next 13, 15 chapters or so. But chapter 40 does set the stage for us. It sets the stage for the work that God's suffering servant would do to deliver his people. So in these final verses, the prophet gives us a preview. He tells us that when the Lord comes for salvation, he's going to come like a strong man, and he's going to come like a shepherd. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. That is the image of the Lord as a strong man. The God who is the conquering king. The Lord who claims what is rightfully his because there is no one and nothing that can resist him. So when the Lord comes in might, it says his reward is with him and his recompense is with him. Recompense isn't a word that we use very often, but it essentially means a payment. It is an honest day's wage for an honest day's labor. The idea seems to be that when the Lord comes to creation, he comes with a job to do. He comes with a task to be completed and a payment to be earned. And the payment the Lord earns is the pardon of his people. That's why they are called his in the very next verse. They belong to him because he has 
earned them. The flock of God who are his treasured possession. The people of the Lord he has claimed for himself, not only by covenant, but also by conquest. So like a strong man, he comes with an arm that rules, and like a shepherd, he comes with an arm that comforts. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It's a promise that if God is your shepherd, he will not treat you harshly. He's not a taskmaster. He's not a hired servant who cares nothing for the sheep. Every move he makes is calculated perfectly to provide for his people. The weary he never turns away. And the hurting he always binds up. And the struggling he carries close to his heart. Do you recognize that language there? It means that in him the separation of our sin has been swallowed up. We who could not share Time and space in the presence of a God who is holy, holy, holy comes and gathers his lambs and carries them close to his heart and his bosom. It's a sign that the separation is over for the work that he completes. And again, this is exactly what Jesus tells us about himself when he came into the world, isn't it? That he's the strong man. That he's the conquering king. That he's the one who lays down his life as a compassionate offering for the sheep. John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, he says. No one takes it from him. He's not wrestled into submission to do this for his people. He says, I have authority to lay down my life. I have authority to take it up again. And for this reason, the Father loves me because I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And his right arm rules for him as a strong man and he gathers his sheep in his arms and he gently leads those that are with young. Dear friends, there is no greater comfort to be found anywhere than this. There's no better gift or grace to know than to know that he is yours. May the Lord give you that comfort today, to know that he is your good shepherd. May he give you the assurance that in him your sins are forgiven. Let's pray together. O gracious and righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for sending your Son into the world. We thank you that he was incarnate for us and laid down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. We pray, O Father, that you would give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving us faith, give us life in his name. Help us to know that he who laid down his life for the sheep also took it up so that we will have a promise of life with you. Give us, O Lord, the grace and the comfort of knowing him, we pray in Jesus' name.